The reading from God's Word comes from Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9 will read verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Lend your attention. This is God's Word. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Jeremy, in prayers, we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Uh, Father, we would hear from uh, the inexhaustible uh, treasury of your wisdom. Uh, how excellent is your word and how lovely its light, how good its effects, Lord. Uh, for we know that it uh, goes forth from you and does not return void, uh, but accomplishes all that you determine it to accomplish. And so we ask now that your word would go forth uh, in power as we receive uh, instruction, uh, nourishment, correction, discipline, and life as Christ is exalted and as we come to understand more and more the excellencies of our King and the desperate need that we have of him moment by moment, hour by hour, now and always. We ask that you would bring these things to pass, Lord, as only you can. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Sermon text is Psalm 27. This is God's word of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an enemy encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. 
Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. It's a striking psalm, isn't it? It struck me. Any number of elements leap out, some of these beautiful titles for God, my light, my salvation, the rock that is higher than I, stronghold of my life. There's this incredibly beautiful image of gazing upon the Lord's beauty in the temple, longing to stand in his presence as one welcomed, as one who has the excellencies of the Lord set forth, not as threat, not as that which would consume, but as object of delight, object of of pleasure. Whiffs of Psalm 16 there. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Even just the idea of the beauty of God The beauty of God. The one whose glory is made known in the heavens, the vast expanse, the majesty of star, sun, moon, that sort of beauty as a reflection of the beauty of God gazing upon the beauty of God. Marry that with Psalm 45 and the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ gazing upon him face to face as a friend. There's ample material for meditation there. Another striking feature is that it seems like there's two different psalms going on here. Did that strike anybody? It felt like there were two minds, two hearts at work in the psalm. I mean, so much so that some have proposed that this is actually two psalms that somehow got compressed. One, a song of confidence, and the other, a lament. Verses 1 through 6 is one psalm. Verses 7 to the end, another psalm. There's a lot here that strikes. I'm not going to exposit the whole psalm. What struck me most is the beginning and the end. The beginning addresses fear. Three times, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? And then, my heart shall not fear in verse 3. And then the close, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It evokes a 
pretty popular refrain. You hear it in Deuteronomy. You hear it in Joshua. It's picked up in the New Testament. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This was the battle cry, as it were, of the holy wars, the conquest, that terrifying picture of God's judgment visited upon a people's who'd sin had grown up to full measure. Mm-hmm. And God, removing his restraint, unleashes judgment in the conquest. And Israel's refrain is, be strong. Be courageous, for the Lord is with us. You know I'm struck by portraits of courage because I talk relentlessly about King Arthur and Aragorn and Lord of the Rings, the once and future king. There's something wonderful about a king who is brave. I don't think we talk about the courage of our king enough. The courage of Christ the spiritual fortitude of Christ, the bravery of Christ, the stout-heartedness of Christ. You get it? He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem? We know it was dreadful beyond measure. As the reality of what awaited him In Jerusalem became plainer and plainer. His distress became plainer and plainer, culminating in the prayers of the Garden of Gethsemane. This dreadful grappling with the Lord. I wanted to meditate on spiritual courage because we see it here in David. And the spiritual courage that we see Here on display in David anticipates the spiritual courage of David's greater son. Whose courage in the face of the unthinkable. Man's sinful heart let loose. That's what the cross was from one angle, was it not? The derangement of sin reaching such a fever pitch that in malicious glee, they crucified the lamb. That's the fever pitch of sin, and it's terrifying, and you hear some of it in this. Evildoers who breathe out violence. Evildoers who will devour the flesh. Christ didn't just stand in the face of that. Christ loved in the face of that. And that's true courage. That which resembles courage, that which kind of looks like courage, endures in the face of derangement. True courage continues to love in the face of derangement. And that we see supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to make some observations about spiritual courage based on Psalm 27. First, notice that spiritual courage is not the absence of fear. Spiritual courage is not the denial of that which is truly terrifying. This is a truly terrifying portrait here. 
evildoers assailing me who would devour my flesh. It's an animal-like image there. Who devours flesh? Well, animals devour flesh. Monsters devour flesh. This is a terrible and terrifying portrait of those who are arrayed against him. Adversaries, foes, those who are seeking to do him particular harm. So there's a sort of mindfulness about their mindless violence, which is terrifying. An army encamped against me. War rising against me. We've mentioned that famous poem by Wilfred Owen, uh, Dolceat de Coramest Pro Patria Mori. It's a terrifying poem. He's attacking this romanticization of war that was going on during World War One, where all of this propaganda was taking place in Owen's beloved England, saying it's sweet and it's meat to die for one's country. And Owen juxtaposes that with this terrifying episode of mustard gas. He says, what is sweet? What is meat about this? He says, don't believe the lie. Dolce et decorum es pro patria mori. It is sweet and meat to die for one's country. The horrors of war, battle. It's terrifying. There's much that is legitimately terrifying that David acknowledges. We can add to this the New Testament portrait, perhaps that greatest glimpse of what we're up against that the New Testament gives in Ephesians 6. I mean, this is likely quite literally a battle where there are quite literally armies arranged against David. Paul says we don't battle against flesh and blood, against powers, against principalities, against the ruler of this present darkness. More difficult on a number of different corners. At least with an army, you know who the fight is against. There are terms that are drawn up. There's clear demarcation about how things are going to unfold. Yes, there are monsters that have gathered, but we know what the call is. It's plain. The enemy that Paul paints deals in shadow and darkness and deception they don't seek to devour the flesh, not in this strict sense. They seek to destroy the soul. To lace human hearts with a poison that lists it in its subsequent devouring agenda. Who can hear Paul's portrait and say, there's nothing to fear? There's nothing that's legitimately terrifying, like a personal enemy who would deceive us into willingly seeking our own destruction. That's not terrifying. The fact that we're relentlessly vulnerable to that, that's not terrifying. The fact that most of the world is in its grasp, that's not terrifying. No, that's legitimately terrifying. There's the scene in the movie, Fellowship of the Ring, we've referenced it before. Are you frightened, little hobbits? I say, yes. He says, not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. 
Scripture wouldn't have us deal in delusion. Courage is not the downplaying of that which is legitimately frightening. It's not the Simba approach to fear. I laugh in the face of danger. No, you're a fool if you laugh in the face of danger. True courage assumes a sober assessment of threat. David acknowledges that the threats are real. The Lord Jesus would have us acknowledge that the threat is real. But then he would have us take heart. The first point is that there is much that is afraid. Courage is not the absence of fear, the denial of that which is truly frightening. Rather, courage is the subjection of that fear to something greater. It's the presence of fear subjected to something greater. Once more, Aragorn in that scene in Return of the King is riding along the ranks of men and he says, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. It's not the presence of fear, it's the prospect of fear dominating the heart which generates the coward's path. The Lord knew what was facing him. He saw it. He came to understand it with greater and greater forcefulness. And it wasn't a foolish, it's no big deal, this will be over by morning. There was a holy and appropriate acknowledgement of the sinful heart that was about to be unleashed. And even more terrifying still, the wrath of God arranged against sin. It's not exactly set forth here, but maybe that's a point worth making a sober view of the wrath of God. Strictly speaking, sin is not that which is most fearful. God's wrath is that which is most fearful. Is it not? An appropriate understanding of the wrath of God arranged against sin, arranged against sinners as that which truly sends fleeing into the only refuge, the only place of safety, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sober. That's right. We said David's fear is sober. Fear can be sober. But fear is not to control. (laughs) The presence of fear is not to dominate, but rather be subjected to something greater. So what is the greater which subjects fear? There's only one thing, but there are a number of imposters First is mere resolve. Mere resolve. One scholar puts it, fear is not mastered by mere resolve. I say mere resolve because certainly resolve is involved here. You hear it. David says, one thing have I asked, that will I seek. That's resolve. 
resolving to seek one thing, resolving to fixate upon one thing. But it's not mere resolve. Mere resolve simply approaches something by a pure, brute act of will. It's the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. It's the John Wayne version of courage. John Wayne famously said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. There's something great about that. I, I acknowledge like that's better than the alternative. <laughs> it's better than the alternative, isn't it? There's much to be said about duty and resolve, and it very well may generate noble action in the face of fear and threat, but it's not spiritual courage. It's not the virtue of fortitude, the Christian virtue of fortitude that we see in all of its loveliness on display here. The second imposter principle is natural prowess. It's not the subjection of fear to the reality of natural prowess. There's a sense in which that would have been a great temptation for David, right? David was surrounded by an elite fighting force. I mean, David's famous mighty men are basically the biblical equivalent of Leonidas and his 300. Arthur and his knights. Like, these are legitimate warriors. They're killing monsters. They're killing giants. They're killing lions. They're killing bears. They're killing leopards. They're killing massive numbers of enemy armies. There's no lack of physical prowess at David's disposal, but he takes no confidence in that. Do you hear it anywhere in here? He says, he does not say the army is arranged against me, but I have some pretty impressive guys. So we're going to be just fine. I'll take it from here, Lord. <laughs> no, he puts no confidence in the flesh. Scripture is constantly warning us about taking solace, taking confidence from these pseudo sources of strength, physical prowess, intellectual prowess, financial prowess. I'll be fine because I'm smarter than the other guy, quite frankly. <laughs> I'll be fine because I know people with more money than the other guy, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm fine because I can bench more than the other guy. Like, I'm fine. The flesh is constantly tempted to take solace from natural prowess in the face of threat. But it's no true source of strength. Jeremiah condemns this thinking altogether. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let not the strong boast in their strength. Let not the rich boast in their riches. To boast in something is to set it forth as one's confidence. So that raises the third imposter principle, which is pride. Pride can generate a potentially brave-looking course, can't it? To gain a claim. To be known as the guy. There's a story 
I came across of a certain captain in World War I. Captain Robert Campbell was captured by the German army, and while he was in the prisoner of war camp, he found out that his mother was dying of cancer, and he wrote to Kaiser Wilhelm II, and he requested a leave so that he could go visit his mother. And the Kaiser granted him the leave upon the condition that the captain return. So the captain visited his mother, and then he returned a week later, saying that he was honor-bound to return. A soldier's sense of honor, doubtlessly the pride in Mother England, <laughs> generated what is certainly a commendable course of action. We can agree upon that, right? It's a commendable course of action. Far better than the constant breaking of faith that's going on everywhere around us where someone's word, as we considered this morning, is always negotiable. <laughs> but once more, this is not the virtue of courage, not true courage. Because even though a commendable course might open up before all these, there's nothing particularly honoring to the Lord about any one of these courses if it hasn't been done in faith. Because that's the only true greater principle. That's the only power which truly subjects fear in an exercise of spiritual fortitude, namely God's promise apprehended. Mm -hmm. That's what David rehearses here. The Lord is my light, my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. Pastor King pointed out those little pronouns are quite significant. <laughs> The Lord for David, God for us, God with us, seized upon by faith as that which subjects fear, as that which overrides fear such that the promise becomes the controlling dynamic and not the fear itself. These promises are everywhere throughout here, not just in the titles. We've already mentioned how it's embodied in the temple. The temple was perhaps the greatest manifestation of God's promise, right? I will be with you. I will dwell with you. Not as threat, but as giver of life. As fountain of blessing as source of joy. That this had been given to David, that he knew this, that he took hold of this, that he took confidence from this, is that which subordinates fear. God for David. It's the excellency of the call of the Lord Jesus Christ that even in the throes of pain and difficulty, even though there was no earthly indication of his father's favor. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
All earthly evidences of God's promises had gone, and yet he clung to it even unto the bitter and entrusting himself to his God and pursuing good unto the end. That's courage. The subjection of that which is legitimately fearful to the excellency of God's promise that all must work for our good. That He is pleased to save. That though the waters may rise, they will not overwhelm. That though the flames may lick, they will not devour. The power generated from the promise of God's presence. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I want to close by making one final observation that the beauty of this courage that David flickers forth here, the excellency of the courage that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, the spiritual courage into which we're called as those who continue to face a very real threat and are continued to be exhorted to be strong in the Lord. What does it look like on the ground? To me, it seems messier than the lovely portraits that such a noble phrase as spiritual fortitude might call to mind. And this is coming back around to this observation that it sounds like we have two very different songs here. Verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 13. Just compare verse 1 and then verse 9. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Serenity to it. It's it's like a calm repose. There's certainly a confidence in it. It sounds very much like Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You almost get the sense that he's taking an almost leisurely stroll through this otherwise nightmarish landscape. But I'm not so sure that's the impression that we're supposed to get. What's the shape of that actual walk? What thoughts ward with him in his heart as he's surrounded by nightmare? Was it as simple as flipping a switch? I'm not brave, now I'm brave. I trust, now that I flipped this switch, where formerly I did not trust. I don't know about you, but that doesn't quite fit my experience. Courage is a messier reality where the tethers of fear never quite fully shed themselves, although, as we said, promise takes its position as that which controls. But listen to the more balanced portrait that emerges when you read verse 1 with verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. 
Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. He even uses the same title that you hear in verse 1. God, my salvation. But it's a very different tone of voice, isn't it? There's desperation in verse 9. There's a frenetic energy in verse 9. It's not quite madness, but you could see how some might mistake it for madness. So what is it? What's the real face of courage? Is it calm repose or is it relentless seeking? Is it serene confidence or is it a desperate plea? It seems like the plain answer is until faith becomes sight, yes. That's rather the portrait that Paul ushers us into in that picture of our ongoing warfare as our Joshua, the Lord, the resurrected one, the one seated in the heavenly places has ushered in a new conquest. Not the conquest of Canaanites, but the conquest of sin as he has come to undo the works of the devil. Paul ushers us into that same tension with verse 10 and verse 18 of chapter 6. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Stunningly similar, isn't it, to that closing exhortation? Psalm 27, Wait on the Lord. Take courage. Be strengthened, my heart. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. His might. Well, that's some might, isn't it? (laughs) That's some power, isn't it? Paul's already rehearsed the excellencies of that power in Ephesians. It's the power of God that raised Christ from the dead and seated him as our king at the right hand where everything is placed in subjection under his feet and he has been given as head of the church. All things subject to him, Christ for us. That's some power. Well, you can see where confidence would come from that. You could see where courage ultimately comes from then. It's not to be found in me. It's not to be found in you. It's not to be found in us collectively as we pool our resources. It's to be found in the King. It's to be found in the one who loved unto death and then was raised above all earthly and heavenly powers and says, little church, be courageous, for I have conquered the world. We talk about the alien righteousness that we enjoy by faith. Maybe we should talk about the alien courage. <laughs> Christ's strength becomes ours as we look away from ourselves and onto the King who subjects all things to Himself. 
But it's not indolence that results from that. It's not complacency that results from that because look at how Paul ends this portrait of the armor of God. He closes it in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Wait on the Lord. David exhorts himself. Pray always, Paul instructs the church. Not just for yourselves, but for one another. Keep alert. Why? Not because there's nothing out there that can harm us. Keep alert because there is much out there that can harm us. And that this alertness is in God's design, that which orients us to the true nature of the threat such that we are rightly oriented to the only source of strength and perseverance in the face of that threat, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it? Confidence or desperation? Repose or seeking? Yes, church. He is mighty to save. But let the terrible truth of sin's ongoing influence, the terrible truth of the world's ongoing allure, the terrible truth that the devil roars about, prowling, seeking someone to devour, sober us to what hunts us, so that in sober fear, We flee to the captain, our brave king, against whom no one can stand. Let's pray. We thank you for these words of encouragement, Lord, as we consider our king and his excellencies, his life of love and holiness, which persisted in the face of such cruelty and deceitfulness, Lord. We rejoice that it was yielded in perfect obedience to bring us unto glory by ransoming, by saving, by rescuing. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us as you build us up in confidence toward your promises, Lord, such that they become that which controls, that which guides, that which leads, that which strengthens. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.